barley artist. I think it's called ASMR or something like that, where people make soothing sounds to put people to sleep. <sighs> is it? It is. <laughs> you can find them on YouTube. I could be wrong about the letters, but it's something along those lines. And. Didn't make the noise. <laughs> I'm not a very good Farley artist. <laughs> Coming in with the energy. I'm ready. <laughs> I, love I love this. I love this. I'm super excited to be here. This is my attempt to break away from the nine to five. Slowly getting drunk with my husband. <laughs> Welcome to the Nightmare Box. <laughs> Presenting mistakes were made. My name is Brett Bloom. I'm sitting across from the beautiful, the effervescent, the low energy. Nine weeks back, Kristen Bloom. Nine, oh, nine weeks back in the gym. Yeah, <laughs> yeah my uh, workout program's a nine-week program, and this next week will be my ninth week, and uh, then I have to move to the upgraded version. And you I excited? Am, no. <laughs> <laughs> no, I yes and no, because... Uh, I think I'll probably start seeing results a bit more intensely once I switch to the booty. other program. Booty, booty, booty. <laughs> yeah, because it's five days a week, and um, the way it's divided up is a bit different in the five-week version, so I'm hoping it's a bit more intense, but also dreading it's a bit more intense. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm proud of you. Thank you. Just not want to do this today? No. Do something else? <laughs> no, play, good. Play I, I literally just left the gym. Well, normally you're and amped. I had to go to Costco. <laughs> I didn't take pre-workout today. Oh, that explains it. Yeah. You started I, off by yawning into the microphone. I didn't take any pre-workout <laughs> yeah, today. There's the third one. I'm tired. Two minutes in, three yawns. I'm tired. I went to the gym and then I had to go to Costco because we couldn't find any chicken wings and I found the most absurd bag of chicken wings. Hell yeah. We're going to so. do chicken wings. Wings. Wangs. wangs. Chicken wang. Those are too small. Can't fry those. Wangs? Chicken wangs. <laughs> Little <Yeah>. chicken dick. <laughs> That's gross. <laughs> Rooster cock. A cock's cock. A cock's cock. <laughs> but being a man's man. <laughs> <laughs> I'm good on that. I will pass. Thank you, though. <laughs> oh, Winston, oh. fuck off. Okay. Welcome to the Nightmare Box. I know. <laughs> Presenting mistakes were made. My name is Brad Bloom. I'm sitting across the middle. <laughs> <laughs> <that already. laughs> so what? How was your day? It, it, it was all right. Let's. I guess we'll just get into it. I I got this book that I tried to read last week, and I uh, didn't get around to it. It's Alfred Hitchcock: A Brief Life by Peter Ackroyd, and there's a couple of sections in there I thought maybe we could talk about. No. 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 <laughs> Screw it. You're giving me nothing. <laughs> this was morning radio. People would be driving their cars <laughs> off cliffs. <laughs> well, you have to give me something, too. I'm trying. I can't be all the energy. I gave you Cox Cock. <laughs> Technically, I gave you Cox Cock. <laughs> <laughs> That's weird. Um, but basically, this is, you know, as one might be able to guess by the title, a small biography on uh, Hitchcock. I'm not a massive fan. Really? Uh, uh, yeah. How far in are you? Ready to tap. Um, I mean, in the 80s. How uh, long is it? Page 82 of, I believe, 269. Yeah, about 260. So why don't you like it? It's, 
boring. <laughs> like there's small insights like throughout it, but it doesn't tell like a narrative story like a good biography does. There's no arc to the story. It's not like cut in part, you know, here for Hitchcock and then here's a major life event and the next major life event and, you know, dash through all the tiny details. I know he made Psycho. You know, unless you're going to go behind the scenes on the set, then I don't care that, you know, he made a movie in 1937. You're going to mention it in a brief paragraph just so you can go, well, he went here, then he was in Germany, then he came back to England, then he went to America. So it's basically I, just... Yeah. following him around it's like a newspaper article like a whole bunch of newspaper clippings just kind of tied together hmm. there are some small interesting like asides just because this is the first thing i've read about hitchcock i've never seen a documentary and i've only seen like three of his movies but i love him <laughs> it's one of those types of deals and so i thought i'd learn about his life and i have learned some interesting things you know about him growing up um because for starters i forget that he wasn't always an old man. <laughs> so it's like, there he was, 1915. And it's like, oh shit, he was around back then. <laughs> he went he to was, grade yeah, school. He was growing up during World War One, <laughs> And that it tries to make some connections as to how that may have affected his later work, but I don't feel that it effectively, you know, it, it's definitely opinion. Like there's nothing, mm -hmm. Hitchcock didn't give a lot of interviews, you know, <laughs> so there's not a whole lot to thread through so it, it it's kind of monotonous I'm do thinking. you think you're gonna end up tapping mm-hmm a major complaint is on every other page he just calls him fat and it bugs me it's like why are you kicking the man once he's dead <laughs> he's like yeah he was fat and he hated that he was fat anyway so then they were on the set of vertigo you know <laughs> and there he was being fat you know <laughs> They call him fat so many times. It's not an exaggeration. I've, I've thought about going back with a highlighter and highlighting every time this guy calls Hitchcock fat. It's like he's one of the greatest minds in directorial history. And you're just going to sit there and be like, yep, he was always a pudgy, quiet boy sitting in the corner. <laughs> That's kind of mean. It's like, we don't need that. Um, but yeah, I've got a couple of things. Do they at least use it to try to make points about no, his personality no sometimes it's just like yeah and then he was there and he was fat still and <laughs> the american media made fun of him for eating two steaks at a dinner sad <laughs> they're like he's portly <laughs> and then like looking back portly, yeah but... 2020 america it's like he's not really he's just old man fat like he's not like huge he probably could have lost a hundred pounds but there are probably some people half his age running around right now that are twice as yeah, big. I saw people bigger than Hitchcock at Walmart today and I was only there for five minutes. <laughs> In and out. I was like, holy fucking fat guy. Now I want to Google a photo of him because I like vaguely have an image of him in my mind. No, it's like on the a, cover of the book. No, like a full-bodied photo oh, of him. Oh, like, I'll, I'll flip through here. I was going to vaguely have an image in my mind of how big he is, but like, this is like making me imagine him as like this giant blimp instead. No, that's him young. I mean, it's a He's a bigger dude. He's a big, he is portly. Yeah, he is a portly man, but to bring it up on... But you can establish, yeah, he remained fat his whole life. Moving forward. Oh. You know, like, let's talk about uh, the genius that he McFat was. fat fat. Yeah, so that bugs me, and the style of the writing bugs mm -hmm. me, and I doubt I'm going to make it halfway through the book, because I've got seven other books over there on the shelf that are a lot more interesting. You know, I got this one because I was like, oh, it'll be a nice quick read. But it's written like the guy was just sitting there with the thesaurus most of the time. And it's very British and just stale. Is this the first one you've tapped on since uh, when Rabbit 
Howells? Right. No, there was one other one. I can't remember. The, oh, uh, fucking right. William S. Burroughs. Oh, that's right, because you said it was... That's right. I don't know what's happening yeah. here. <laughs> <laughs> I think it was Naked Lunch. I was like, yeah, fuck this. I don't <laughs> I don't get it. Like, I, I understand you have a lot of violent sexual, you know, feelings, but I don't, I, I don't know why you're putting them in this book. <laughs> we should create a subsection of the bookshelf of books brett could not like yeah. sit through there's like 10 of them probably in total in my life where i'd just I be like, curious to see what all they were though like side by side like yeah. these are the books brett couldn't stand because i've sat through some shit you know like i have stayed in a book where i'm like god damn it end it already and it, it, i treat them like movies i'm committed i've started it i'm not walking out of the theater on hitchcock but i might have to walk out of the theater on hitchcock metaphorically Te- technically it's not hitchcock himself though yeah it's peter Ackroyd. I don't know if he's related to Dan, but... Maybe. It's possible. Anyway. Anyway. So you were reading. So I'm reading it. And I've got a couple of things here. Um, I don't know how this is going to go because I can't read the whole biography and drop you exactly where he is. I'm not going to remember. So we'll just take it as is. Uh, So him and his wife Alma go to Germany. Uh for a project. And this is the paragraph on page 22. Neither Hitchcock nor Alma could speak a word of German and were first reduced to sign language and a sort of technical petoy, but they persevered. They learned more than a language. They learned an art form. On an adjoining set, the German director F.W. Murnau was working on The Last Laugh, a silent film with no subtitles and only one title card at the end. It was a triumph of expressive filmmaking. Murnau took the young Englishman into his confidence and, as Hitchcock later said, from Murnau I learned how to tell a story without words. From Murnau he also learned the technique of the fluid camera, which can rove like any character. He learned another device. If you need to show a mansion or a cathedral, you do not need to create a version of a mansion or a cathedral. You need only show a marble pillar or a great wooden door or just part of that door. The imagination of the audience will do the rest. What you see on the set does not matter, Murnau told him. All that matters is what you see on the screen. The equivalent of fake it till you make it. Fake it till you make it. (laughs) So what are your thoughts? Ah, uh, director lady. I guess that's an interesting thought to think about that leaving the title cards off was revolutionary because technically even those films were silent films mm-hmm. that just had cards that would pop up to tell you what the actors were saying. Um, yeah, Lucy forgot her car keys and then it's just <laughs> footage of a woman frantic going, I can't find my car keys. So it was kind of an interesting concept because I would have thought... In the planning of even those films, you would have had to have been thinking of it from a perspective of not having sound at your disposal. Mm-hmm. So I, I never really thought about that being a different art form. Yeah. Like, no sound is no sound for me <laughs> because I grew up in the talkies era. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I've got a quote in here about when he has to move to the talkies and how he does it, which is brilliant. Uh, we'll get to that here in a minute. But I liked the concept of thinking of the camera as a character that roves along with the other characters. I do think it can add to, uh, I guess, the mood of a movie because uh, I am, um, that is one thing we've talked about before, kind of bad about having too many stationary shots mm-hmm. or not like blocking my shots or whatever. And when you have, um, 
the camera kind of moving. It does create a mood. Like, um, I don't know how effectively I pulled it off, but like in Happy Birthday, for instance, at the end when you're like walking down the hall, yeah. um, the character is still just sitting on the couch and the camera is the only thing moving and mm-hmm. you're just getting like flashes. So ideally, uh, in a perfect world, I was hoping that would create tension because it's like, you're almost now a character in the story as well. Yeah. Like, what's we've at the end of the hall? We've pulled away from the main character to this room that we've yeah. blocked off this whole time. Yeah, and so ideally in a perfect world, it's creating tension of the viewer kind of being like, what's at the end of this hallway? Mm-hmm. So, yeah, um, like having purposeful movement with the camera definitely, I feel like, adds to the story or the tension or... Mm-hmm. In general, the mood. <laughs> what about the on scene versus on set? What do you mean? Where you can create the mansion without building the mansion. You just need to set a certain area of the room to look very much like a mansion. I mean, you and I have technically done that on a much smaller scale. Yeah. I mean, I feel like unless you have a massive budget film, you kind of have to be able to think outside of the box because most people don't have the budget to really mm-hmm. realistically have the sets that they want. Um to make the movies that they're making um with the dolls we which we've talked about that before um used one house for the entire movie basically and shot it in sections so it would look like it was two different places and then um the room that we were shooting in didn't lead into a closet so we had to like fake that the girls were going into the closet and then shoot in an entirely separate location even when we uh chainsawed down the door for the closet scene that didn't even happen in the house at all that was in um a workshop i guess mm-hmm. um that they had as a separate building so um yeah i think i think that's a super important skill set because it's not incredibly likely unless you're doing like a comedy where you're not doing anything dramatic in the setting yeah. that you're ever really going to have the setting that you need that's a good point with the door because that's I guess what he was trying to say there was conceptualizing. I need to make it look like this on the screen. Yeah. It doesn't need to look like that here in the room. Yeah. You know, I'm focusing in the lens so that you see a very small snippet. I can manipulate that, you know, kind of like magic. And I don't think we did it perfect on the dolls. Like, and maybe it's just cause I know where all of those scenes were shot. Mm-hmm. Like I buy, because of the way we angled it, you never really see what's on the other side of the door that they went into. Yeah. I buy that the door that they went into led into a closet. Um, the chainsawing scene, I don't necessarily think editing-wise perfectly matched up with looking like he's literally chainsawing the door in real time yeah. that they're behind. Um, but I think it was close enough that visually people can kind of connect the pieces and like if your audience like if you can put enough there that your audience can suspend their disbelief Mm -hmm. for the pieces that are missing and not to defend my own acting prowess (laughs) in that you know chainsaw down the door scene i liked it on a on a level of i felt like one of the kids in the room Mm -hmm. like it would be this grandiose fast shot very bright lights very dark room yeah you know kind of feel you know in her memory by the end when she goes to see the therapist i think that's probably more what you and i were aiming for anyway that it it is from the perspective of a scared child in the closet and maybe the memory is a little like off from what reality would have been but um 
Yeah, it is funny to me, like, knowing that we faked that. Like, if you <laughs> pause it, you can totally tell uh, the actor is not the one chainsawing down the door because there's a section where the door is a bit more exposed and you can see that that is visibly a person wearing a coat because it was cold <laughs> outside. And, it yeah. was cold and I didn't have any fucking, you know, safety suit. Yeah. <laughs> pair of sunglasses <laughs> but I, I think that's an important technique for sure to pick up like if you can leave enough breadcrumbs that your audience can get to the mm-hmm. bigger picture on their own um you can fake a lot of things <laughs> <laughs> hell fucking yeah um my next note a little something about the cool shot effect what's it really called uh the cold shot from watch this is from page 2425 um one paragraph but it's split between the pages from watching films such as Einstein's battleship put uh, I don't know this word Potemkin and Puvatkin's mother uh Hitchcock was formally introduced to the art of montage which became a key element in his cinematic technique pure cinema as he put it amounted to complementary pieces of film put together like notes of music make a melody the director in the editing room could establish patterns of tone and of movement, of mood and of imagery that could dominate the experience of the film. The actor was no longer the principal agent of meaning. His feelings, his expressions, his thoughts could now be manipulated by cutting and splicing. The actor smiles. There is a baby. He is a nice man. The actor smiles. There is a nude woman. He is a lecher. These early lessons were invaluable to Hitchcock's art. I think it's interesting, which I mean, it it is literally, I think it's interesting that that's considered montage, though, because I think what we think of now in modern cinema as montage is a bit more like whenever movies do that whole, we got to get ready so we can go to the place and they slam cut like the getting dressed and brushing teeth and all that stuff together into like a big long sequence. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, you get the Rocky fight song. That's not the Rocky fight song. I think that's interesting. We're taking all of the power out of the third act of Rocky. I think that's interesting though that that's, I mean, it is technically, but that's considered montage because the theory behind um, the cold shot effect is just a couple of images together. It's not like a slam series of events where you get the sped up version of whatever's happening, which is kind of what I feel like we think of mm-hmm. montage now. Um, but it is true. Uh, um, I did a, which I don't, I don't know if we had talked about this theory yet in school whenever we had to do this, but I did a thing called like a five by five challenge in mm-hmm. uh, college where we had to take five five second clips and piece them together yeah. and make like a mood for whatever it was. And mine was uh, patience was the theme of mine. And so I shot five entirely different clips of mm-hmm. um, my niece doing stuff that weren't like technically related to each other but once you piece them all together like it made a story Mm -hmm. so it was like her foot tapping her fingernails like wrapping on the counter and then um i did a shot of the clock like ticking so it's kind of like show don't tell you know as opposed if i was gonna think of it in a writing sense Mm. you don't say he slammed the door angrily you know you just say he slammed the door and you can convey the same feeling yeah um but yeah i mean it's 
in theory, like you're piecing together things so that the audience can make the connection themselves. And then she was waiting on her Pop-Tart to toast in the toaster, <laughs> and that was the final image. And then you're like, oh, like, it, impatience, you know? Yeah. Um, but yeah, it is a... I've never tried to manipulate it by pulling out the middle shot, like what uh, Hitchcock talks about, uh, to see if it literally changes the mood. But I do think that's an interesting thought, that you can leave the start and end piece the same and switch out the middle and people will interpret it differently. Yeah. Hell yeah. <laughs> <laughs> for And nobody has a visual except for me. Kristen is head in hand. <laughs> I was in a gym. <laughs> Cut me some slack. The next little bit's about storyboarding. <clears throat> Something that we don't personally do for our films, but that, you know, once we work at a larger production, something that is outside of our apartment, we tend to work more with storyboarding. But thanks, quarantine, we're stuck in a one bedroom and we're making films here. <laughs> um, I can't remember the context of where we are um, with this, so just. Deal with me. I know we're in 1926. I don't know what else is happening. Uh, Elliot Stannard had already staged work on the script in the early months of 1926, and Hitchcock began to break down the narrative into hundreds of small drawings, which were designed to specify, in his words, the exact grouping and action of the characters and the placing of the camera. This was the technique, formerly known as storyboarding, that he used intermittently for the rest of his life. He conceived his films in purely visual terms. He told aspiring cameramen that they should go to an art gallery to learn the effects of the great masters. They should study Rembrandt and Vermeer in order to learn the use of shadow and reflection. In his visual meditation upon characters and objects, he became the camera, or an extension of the camera. The camera was for him the pivot of any film. Now, this was not filmed theater or a filmed story. It was simply film. The use of light was its music. Rising in intensity from piano to forte. I don't know if I've said either one of those words right, but that's how they're spelled. And in the process, creating a unique rhythm of meaning. I honestly, um, weirdly kind of envy people that can storyboard, um, I am far too anal in anything I do to sketch out something that like yeah. I know looks like We've garbage. talked about that. Like your first love was drawing or painting yeah, and stuff. Yeah, and I'm very yeah. OCD about it. So, um, you had to give up because you couldn't get the eyes to match directly. <laughs> well, yeah, just in general. Like, and I, I might still have my old sketchbook laying around somewhere. I can't remember if I kept it or not. But like I would spend months trying to draw one very small, simple thing and like my older sister could just like sketch shit out like mm -hmm. it was nothing and um yeah with storyboarding like i i can't let go enough to be like i'm okay with this looking like a really rough sketch just so i can get the idea out so my version of storyboarding for myself is uh um i'll take a copy of the script and write little like very yeah. explicit notes off to the side of how i see it in my head yeah. just like character fists himself with cucumber no. <laughs> you said explicit, okay? <laughs> Definitely not. Um, detailed... Like, Kristen, that is not... Detailed notes. I don't know where you're getting that. I don't know... 
Is that it wasn't the, in the original is, story. Is it the poetics? Are you, are you, is <laughs> yes. this some avant-garde approach? <laughs> Metaphorically. Metaphorically, character fists himself <laughs> with cucumber. I'm going to write that as a side note for an actor <laughs> one day, and they'll be like, I... It seems like a happy yeah. scene. He had is a look on his face as though he'd just been fist with a cucumber. Yeah. <laughs> no. <laughs> Detailed notes, whatever. Um, yeah, I, my version, I'll see kind of snippets in my head of how I want it to be, and I'll just write kind of notes for myself off to the side of how I'm kind of envisioning it, because, yeah, I can't, um, I can't storyboard. I've tried. I can't. Yeah. Um, there are apps, though, that are pretty cool that'll let you, like, take, um, pictures if you're, like, on location at your, um, location. You can take pictures of how you want the scene to look, and like with a lot of them, you can change out um, the type of camera your phone nice. like thinks it's using, and you can change out the lenses so it'll kind of adjust the crop for how that camera would technically see it. I mean, it's not going to look the same quality, but it'll, but it'll adjust. Be close. Yeah. yeah, it'll adjust like the crop and stuff for you. And then I think some of them actually have like little like. 3D characters you can put in the scene yeah. to like pretend to be actors. So I'm like, well, I'm glad I was born in the age of like <laughs> digital advancement. <Yeah. laughs> then I can just be like, click, drop two people in there, put a car in there. With the Hitchcock, basically, what they're saying is he had a sketchbook and like a fucking comic book writer, you know, or animator rather, I guess. He would have to like, here's a tiny cir- uh, square, and here's my dude in my tiny square talking to my person on the chair, and then like he had to learn cross hatching and all that shit to figure out how to shade these sketches in, and so that he still... could hand it to somebody and be like, I want it to look like this. <laughs> and that's still, I think, how a lot of people do it. I have a lot of respect for that type of uh pre-planning i just can't mentally get yeah. there <laughs> I, I i do think it's important i think in theory it would probably make my actual shoot day a bit more organized if i could see it mm-hmm. firsthand before the day of but i'm just like well i know how i saw it in my head so let's do this <laughs> my only experience with it when it comes to film was in our class that we took together uh where we made like our little like thing beforehand where it's like well if the bible yeah the bible so we were envisioning this person as playing this character uh this is you know pictures we found on the internet that would reflect the set that we would want in any particular scene so we could all conceptualize the dingy bar at the end of town or the park in the middle of the town and you know stuff like that i do actually think that helps because i had never um heard of that before or done that before because i i with all of my, uh, like, freelancing experience, had never really, like, joined any major production until it was already, like, up and rolling and going. So I didn't really do any of the pre-production stuff. But I do actually find the show Bible um, super helpful. And every time we've done a longer project, I've always done it just because it does, I feel like, kind of to some extent help you focus on what the general idea was so you don't stray from like the mood you were trying to set yeah so it is actually i feel like a pretty cool technique um i think we've talked about it before but maybe we should do a show like deep diving that because i'd never even heard of that before we Mm -hmm. did it uh in faith's class so and i I think it's helpful. I mean, a lot of people that do like fantasy writing, and I'm not saying it's just fantasy writers, but because of the nature of that kind of writing, you need to. Um, they build maps, you know, kind of like Tolkien at the beginning of Lord of the Rings, where it's like, here's my little map so you know where we are. 
Are we hanging out with the hobbits? Are we over here with Dumbledore? I don't know. Dumbledore, you know? <laughs> Dumbledore was not in Lord of the Rings. Are we looking at the third eye on top of that volcano thing? You know, at least I know where that is. That's east. But I like do. people that write fantasy novels. And, you know, other people who are, you know, doing whole city settings where their person needs to move from location to location, they will sketch out like a little thing. So you're like, oh, yeah. So every time I write, I know that when he gets to Walker and Parkway, he takes a left to get to the coffee shop. And if he's coming down, you know, Walker and whatever, then he takes, you know, the right to get to the coffee shop. Have you ever done any of that when you were... uh writing like one of your novels like (laughs) i use very 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 small settings uh in my books there's not a lot of traveling outside of the primary location for the story um the one that i've entitled victimhood as a work in progress title for a book you guys will probably never be able to read about a vigilante pretty much (laughs) that's the most traveling i've done but it's to only like two or three places that only get visited once like they're not reoccurring areas i think that's an interesting concept if you're ever doing um or either of us are ever doing like a larger work where there is Mm -hmm. a bit more movement like just having a sketch of the town so it's like oh person a lives here person b lives here i can do x's on a map I can do the little square house with the triangle roof. That's my kind of storyboarding. Hell fucking yeah. (laughs) And sometimes that's all you need to do, but it is used in writing, you know, and as, you know, we're talking about here, it is used in film. You know, I'm not going to get William Defoe to play my bad guy, but I want to write the story with William Defoe in mind, like some of the attributes that I see in him. And by giving, you know, pretending, you know, that he's already been set up to fucking star in your film when you're writing it or when you're filming it or you're conceptualizing the film at any level mm. you you give it william i don't know why i picked him you give it william defoe, like, that is an interesting choice give him william defoe energy you're like i've got william defoe can't piss well can't piss off brad pitt he's the only one god ever made i do think my <laughs> only caution there would be um i don't know if when we did the dolls we showed because we did make a show bible i don't know if we showed the show bible to any of the actors i don't think we did Mm -hmm. um i think my only caution if you're making something like that would be maybe don't show it to your actor no Um, it should all be the behind the scenes like part of the writing process and shit like my fear would be um like if you're picking out actors that you're kind of envisioning Mm -hmm. that role to be it's helpful for when you're going into casting but then your actor might actually try to emulate that actor yeah now uh, i'm doing my best fucking william shatner impression and and we've worked with people in the past that you could tell were kind of trying to emulate someone else and Mm -hmm. it's like this like just be you like this isn't working just be you Yeah, and I, mean, I understand why they do that. I mean, we'll get to what Hitchcock had to say about actors as well, because <laughs> we all know Brett's normal feelings, you know, for the um, the non-professional. Um, but you see it in filmmaking, you see it in writing, you see it in comedy. You know, early stages, you're still trying to figure out how to do it. You almost put on somebody else's suit until you're comfortable enough to build your own suit. You know, I did it with Polinick for 
very much <laughs> my uh, teenage years when I was doing a lot of the writing then because I was reading a lot of Polinek. I liked his nihilistic style and the way he clipped down sentences. Mm -hmm. And I was able to keep part of that because I like that part of him, <laughs> you know, and then borrow things from other writers, build my own little toolbox and be like, okay, well, I got my clip sentences from over here and I've got my longer sentences in detail from this direction. And my whole attitude towards it, you know, thank you, Brett Aston Ellis. I'm happy we had the same first name. <laughs> I had kind of the opposite and maybe that's why I have a harder time when we talk about who our favorite artists are answering that. Um, I was not great at acting. I, I didn't enjoy it. It wasn't really a passion of mine, ultimately. But uh, um, when I still like thought I wanted to like act and stuff like that, I watched a lot of movies. And like any time there was like a really heavy hitting emotional scene, it mm -hmm. wouldn't necessarily be like, oh, I like the actor or the director or whatever. It's like, wait, what did they do just then that yeah. made that so powerful? So I'd rewind back and rewatch that. And I think whenever. Um, I was still acting and stuff. I, like, tried to channel more that energy, like, what brought the intensity of that moment from mm -hmm. whoever it came from. And um, that might be a part of the problem. I'm not quite sure what my own style is because I'm just like, oh, I like... Like, these moments, not yeah. necessarily these... It's like, I want to blow up a car, but I don't have Michael Bay money. <laughs> it's not necessarily directors or actors in particular that I'm like, oh, I really like all of their work. I'm like, I really like this scene in this movie. Yeah. What's making it happen? Is it mm. the explosiveness of the character? Is it the color here? Is it the editing process? What makes this all work so beautifully? I get that. And that's kind of the stuff I had. I guess I'd... with writing, it's different because it's one person, you know, and that's the only person really involved. You know? <laughs> so you're like, man, God damn it. I want to write Fight Club. <laughs> <laughs> but I would think, I mean, I'm not a writer, but I would think in theory, um, a good writer is the same thing as a good editor. You don't hear the voice of the writer necessarily. Mm -hmm. Like you get lost in the characters and yeah. the story and all that which i know i have a different specific. perspective on it because i am a writer so like i re i've been taught by arroyo over the course of a year to read like a writer you know like look at it why why did that paragraph make you want to cry you know let's go back all the way down to how long are the sentences <laughs> makes sense I'm not a writer. <laughs> but when I watch films, I, you know, directors have signatures, too. They do. And, like, I, I, I'm on the fence about whether or not that's a good thing or a bad thing. Like, to me, I wonder if that's boxing yourself in. Yeah. Like, especially with directors, because there are some directors where it's like, anytime you see their movie, it's like, oh, that's that person's movie. Yeah. And you can't watch a Tarantino without going, the ending is going to be violent as fuck. <laughs> you know, that whole theory of if it's not broken, don't fix it or whatever. So if you found your formula that really works for you, yeah. maybe that is the move. But I I don't know. I, I don't know that I would want to be known as the director who always did that one thing, you know? <laughs> Okay. Well, back to my whole book about a director who just did one thing. <laughs> There's a cute picture for you, by the way. This is 1929 on the set of Blackmail showing primitive audio equipment. Hitchcock can be seen in the top right of the photo. It's weird to think of him being alive <coughs> in the 20s. That's what I was saying earlier. Like, to me, he's been perpetually old. Like I, I still have to remind myself that he's dead. 
When did he die? Uh, no, I haven't finished the book yet, love. Well, I mean, <laughs> you knew he was dead already, though. You may have just generally known what year he died. It would have been in. wild if he was making films in 1929. He hasn't put out a film since, you know, the fucking 60s. So I'm imagining sometime in the 60s. Smartass. <laughs> I haven't finished the book. I'll tell you. I'll know. Got to the end of the I'll story. know the date. <laughs> I'll know what people felt. Not if he quit it. Exactly. I gotta get all, if if I don't if I don't finish it, he's not dead to me. Oh, okay, that's how that works. <laughs> <laughs> it's the problem with biographies is you know they're gonna be dead at the end. Like there's no like, come on, dude, you're gonna pull through. And it's like no, he's dead as fuck. He's dead as fuck, or he wrote it himself. <laughs> you know, like, new options. It's supposed to be inspiring. <laughs> so it's this the is story our, of his life. This is our transition to the talkies, and I thought this was particularly brilliant. Because when we think of the silent era and then we think about the talkie era, that switch, like from all this distance of like a hundred years, you know, it's hard to think about what that must have been, you know, putting a quarter in and seeing like 15 seconds worth of film and being blown away, you know, or going to your movie theater to see the evening news as opposed to hearing it on the radio, and then it's gone, and you're like, that was the great Mickey Mouse 30-second cartoon you paid 15 cents for. You know, going from that to somebody just saying hello, being like a revolutionary experience, is 100 years ago. And I think we're due to update the talkies think we need to make it happen but we've made our silent film it mm-hmm. wasn't completely silent we used ambient noise and a little bit of music um we didn't use music there was music on the credits but that was one of the rules right. we couldn't use music yeah so we made our ambient noise version of a silent film we wouldn't have even been able to do that <laughs> back then this is hitchcock I personally think silent films are incredibly boring <laughs> oh it's because We've had talkies for a hundred years. <laughs> <laughs> they would have been gripping and emotional, and The Godfather is probably going to be boring to our grandchildren. Not our actual children, because I'll beat them if they ever tell me that Pacino was a bad actor. Pacino was a bad actor. <laughs> I'll beat you right now. I'll just, we can use this in court. <laughs> this is how Hitchcock, embrace yourself, because it's fucking incredible, transitioned into the talkie films. So he's making this film called Blackmail, as we established a second ago, in 1929. Hitchcock had agreed to direct Blackmail, a capable thriller derived from a West End success. The chronology is unclear, but it seems that he had already begun a silent version of the film when it was decided to issue a sound version as well. Hitchcock had, in fact, anticipated the studio's instruction. An assistant cameraman on Blackmail agreed that Hitchcock loved the idea of sound. Unlike Charlie Chaplin, who considered it to be a blow to pure film, Hitchcock was immediately aware of its possibilities. He planned the sound version even while he was working on the silent alternative. He imagined dialogue even before the first words were spoken. In an article for the News Chronicle, he revealed that I did it by shooting a lot of scenes where sound could be tacked on afterward and making a lot of other scenes, not in the script, with sound. When they were all assembled, the whole picture was a talkie. 
The first reel remains essentially silent, but the rest of the film takes advantage of a new range of sound effects. The earliest scenes, showing the arrest of a thief, are played entirely in the old tradition of silent melodrama. After booking their man, the two detectives walk down a corridor in Scotland Yard. Slowly but subtly, their voices begin to be heard, and the audience is formally introduced to the world of sound. This moment was doubtless both unsettling and exciting. Can you imagine that? You've lived in an era of silent film. You're watching what is apparently going to be yet another silent film, and you hear on the cobblestones. <laughs> I do wonder how clunky sound equipment would have been back then. Because my little audio recorder is just a little handheld recorder. Like, yeah. what were they using back then to capture the audio, I wonder? Well, what they were saying was that they had to put, like, bowls of ice in front of fans because the lights were so hot. and Because <laughs> they were using, like, theater lights in small sets. So the actors were constantly sweating off their makeup if they didn't try to, like, refrigerate the room, basically. That's why I'm glad... Uh... LEDs have started to come a long way because even whenever I was in film school, um, I think it's tungsten lights or, uh, shoot. That sounds right, yeah. Yeah, maybe it's tungsten. Tungsten's also a temperature, so I wasn't sure if that was the right name for the type of light, but they're very, very hot. And, like, you have to, like, when you're breaking stuff down, turn them off way in advance and let them cool down because you could yeah. literally, like, third degree burn yourself if you try to touch it and you can't back it away while it's hot um that's still primarily what's used on film set uh film sets and stuff now and leds have finally started to really progress and that's what my lights are because yeah that shit sucks and it makes the set <laughs> hot and you can't have the air on because the air makes a sound and it picks up in the noise yeah but i i would be very curious to see what giant, like, hand-cranked audio <laughs> recorder they had. <laughs> Hello, Stacy. Because, <laughs> yeah, if you listen to early talkies, the sound quality is so bad. Yeah. It's so bad. <laughs> yeah, and you can always seem like the mic of something, like the shadows. Like, they, they didn't realize that they were blowing themselves into the scene. <laughs> I think, too, the syncing isn't quite right, because I feel like on some of it, they had to record the audio and then lay it back on top mm-hmm. of it later. So it's like the actor just being like, let's just time this and hope it looks right. (laughs) Hey, Bob. And then his lips move. (laughs) But how crazy would that have been to be in this era of silent film and then be literally walked into the talkies? You hear him coming, you know, hey, Bob, how's it going? I'm fucking... I feel like if I'm remembering right, because we had to study I'd shit it. my pants in the theater. That's what I would do. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like if I'm remembering right, because we had to study all this in school. Um, when talkies came around, it um, was when the big movie corporations started to crumble. The yeah. ones that were in place. They and, like, collapsed because the actors were great when they didn't have to talk, but they all had like, I smoke four packs of cigarettes a day voice. <laughs> and people's like, cause actors used to have contracts with the actual studio and they would have like films lined up that hadn't even been written yet. And, uh, I think actors started losing their contracts and stuff too. Mm-hmm. So probably would have been a scary time if you were in the silent film industry. You'd be like, shit, do I still have a job? Yeah. <laughs> It's got to be nuts. I can't even think about it. But, like, we're 100 years away from it, so we're destined for what's the next big 
I don't thing. know. I, like CGI has come such a far way. I don't really know what would be next because we can literally make a movie that's in, completely in a green room. Yeah, yeah, that's completely all made up. Like all you have is just your actor in a completely green room, and you can make the movie whatever you want it to be. I hate that. It bugs the. I, I'm on Charlie Chaplin's side when it comes to that. It's not pure film at that point. You were a video I... game developer and you made the Avengers. Congratulations. You you had Robert Downey Jr. in a green suit as opposed to in an actual movie. <laughs> and I love him as Iron Man in the first Iron Man. I can't vouch for the other Iron Mans. I definitely think CGI is overused, probably because it's cheaper than practical effects, depending on what you're filming. And yeah, you can't actually blow up New York City with a giant snake thing. <laughs> and some things you can't literally <laughs> do practically anyway. But um, I appreciate, at the very least, if that's where films are going to be, that it's at least advanced. Because I remember um, Scorpion King. Yeah, uh, that too. But no, I, I remember when Planet of the Apes came out and it was like, wow, they really kind of look like talking monkeys. Like yeah. that actually looks like that is a real monkey instead of like this badly like done cartoon, mm-hmm. like up walking around because there were other movies that had like stuff like yeah, that. Yeah, they had the zipper suit still. Or even, even whenever it was CGI, there were other movies where they had tried to pull stuff like that off before and it just didn't look like the thing that it was supposed to be and it's like oh you can tell this is a cartoon (laughs) and like planet of the apes i was like that legit looks like a fucking monkey (laughs) up here walking around yeah and then years later roseanne barr got in trouble that was her joke that got her canceled oh (laughs) she thought a woman was jewish turns out lady was black can't call black ladies apes why would you well. call a Jewish person a monkey, though? Because she looks sense. exactly like the female monkey from Planet of the Apes. Mm. And uh, Roseanne got canceled. Well, that's a rude thing to say either way. It's <laughs> a rude thing to say. You can't call black people apes. And she you goes, I call... thought the bitch was white. <laughs> that's like her big clip. <laughs> still a rude thing to say either way. She's like, she just looks like the monkey. <laughs> that's terrible. But yeah, I... I... I appreciate if we're going to do it at all, at least it's advancing to a point where it looks believable. Yeah. yeah, I I don't want to watch a movie like the, I remember, um, I can't think of what it's called offhand, but the Final Fantasy movie that they came out with that was like so revolutionary. I think I was like a teenager whenever mm-hmm. they came out with that. Um, they were talking about how realistic the people looked. And to be fair... Um, for the time, they looked really incredible. But if you go back and watch it now, it's like you can tell these are not <laughs> real actors. <laughs> yeah. It's like I, I don't know anything about Final Fantasy. But like when I go back and I, 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 I had a weird childhood. So I was around for Grand Theft Auto 3 at an age where I definitely should not have been around for Grand Theft Auto 3. And back then, I thought it was the most realistic thing that had ever happened. And you go back now, and they're basically Lego figures. <laughs> hopping around. Just hopping around, you know? Like, you can only jump, and he always does, like, the left foot lunge. I do have a nostalgia. You can kill yourself jumping off the sidewalk. <laughs> I do have a nostalgia for old, um, I guess, graphics, just because... Uh, that stuff was around when we were kids, like the old uh, Zelda Link to the Past is literally just tiny pixels, and it's yeah. my favorite. <laughs> <laughs> looks like a Game Boy game. Yeah, basically, but it's my favorite. <laughs> like, I don't care if it looks like shit, it's fun. 
We should play Final Fantasy. Or you should play Final Fantasy. I should drink and watch it. I don't it. own any. Oh, you don't? Mm-mm. Well, sad day. I was no. going to give you options for Wing Knight. I have Skyrim. Well, we could play Skyrim. We could slay some dragons. Slay a dragon. <laughs> Sneak around, shoot some shit with my bow and arrow. <laughs> I'm down. No, I don't. I, I think Skyrim might actually be the only game I... Oh, no, I have that one that we drowned in the water and gave up. The one where you're... Because remember, it's the you're in the bunker. What? It's the end of the world game. What is that game called? Fallout? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and I, I told you it scared me because there were cockroaches. <laughs> I was like, you have to play this We tried to play it, and it was just like, I don't know what the fuck I'm doing here. Yeah, you gotta, you gotta go dive in the toxic water, and by the time, and it's so murky, by the time you find the thing in the toxic water, you're dead. Yeah. It's terrible. It was not a good game. No. <laughs> no. But I have that, and I have Skyrim. <laughs> I played Grand Theft Auto. And <laughs> when they put out new UFC games, I buy those, and I get my ass kicked, and I get very frustrated. They do have a... So I can only sit there for about 45 minutes before I'm like, all right, well, I'm done with this. Sorry, we're <laughs> sidetracking from your notes. They do have a... Um, they came out with a, a NES like relaunch thing where it's not actually like you don't have the game consoles you put in it anymore yeah. they're built into it kind of like keep... what they did with the atari a few years ago yeah kind of and i keep thinking i'm gonna buy that because i think it's only like 60 bucks and it's got like super mario and the old mm-hmm. zelda and stuff on it i'm like i don't really play video games but i kind of want it <laughs> <laughs> no i want to get the the atari one because it comes with duck hunt <laughs> duck hunt was fun we live in Montana. You could go duck hunt for real. No shit. But you can't go duck hunt with a fucking pistol. That's the wildest shit in the world. <laughs> they weren't even pretending you were out there with a 20 gauge. Like, then, like here's a pistol. Shoot your television set. If it wasn't COVID, we could go to the arcade and... Play duck hunt. Yeah. But it's COVID. But we can't. My next note is about momentum. <laughs> and flow in film. Um, this is coming from the bottom... <laughs> This is uh, quite a bit of reading, so uh, my apologies. This is technically two British paragraphs. It goes on and on and on, but it's interesting nonetheless. So, first off, I'm going to... This part is not connected to the main part. So, the Hitchcock thriller... So, the Hitchcock thriller was fully born. It defined him, sometimes to his own dismay. He once said that if he made a film out of Cinderella, a corpse would have to roll out of the golden coach. (laughs) And then a little while later. He wanted to build on the strengths of his previous film by creating a fast pace of humor and suspense, charting the perils of the world when order breaks down. So scene follows scene, climax follows climax, and quick succession. There is no opportunity for the characters or for the audience to pause for a breath. As he said in an interview, you use one idea after another and eliminate anything that interferes with the swift pace. Logic and plausibility are not to be considered. The audience did not expect to see a documentary. The hero, Richard Hannay, becomes unintentionally involved in the murder of a strange woman, Yep, that's I read that right. Okay, strange woman, and in the theft of national secrets by a ring of foreign spies. He has to clear his name of the former and thwart the latter. The narrative moves from London to the north, leaving the murdered woman behind, from a jump off the fourth bridge to a crofter's cottage, from the mansion of the leader 
of the spy ring to a small town where Hane tries to evade his pursuers by twice changing his identity. He's handcuffed to Pamela, his initially unwilling fellow traveler, but they flee across the moors and find a remote inn. And then back to London, where the conspiracy is unraveled. It may be baffling in cold print, but on the screen it's pure flight and pursuit. Rapid changes, fleeting moments. If it needed a composer, it would have been Mozart on his high spirits and extraordinary technical virtuosity. (laughs) One switch follows another, with such speed that the audience registers only panic and excitement. An innocent man is being hunted to his death. That is all they need to know. Hitchcock adopted the technique of cutting to a second person while the first is still speaking and explained that this was one of the devices which helped the talkies tell a story faster than a silent film could tell it. Once the narrative is set in motion, it never for a moment stops. That is the true music of Alfred Hitchcock. Does it say what movie that is? I'm not Um, familiar with that one. The Man Who Knew Too Much. Hmm. I'm not familiar (laughs) That's one of his early ones. As I said, I've seen Vertigo, The Birds, and Psycho. Like, I've seen, like, the big three. I've not seen... I want to get, like, the Alfred Hitchcock box set and watch from his first film all the way to his last one. I've seen all three of those. I don't know if I've seen any of his other stuff. I'd have to look at his filmography. Um, That is uh, an interesting way of looking at it, though, because I I do... um, I'm still trying to figure out pacing. I haven't quite really nailed that myself. So mm-hmm. I do uh, kind of envy um, when we watch a movie that's like a emotionally tense movie like Hereditary was or um, thinking of ending things where it just feels like once it gets moving, you know, it's kind of you're just there and you can't get out of it. Yeah, you're on the roller yeah. coaster now. Um, I do actually really appreciate the thing about uh cutting between people that are talking because that's one of the things we uh what is that called we've talked about that before uh l cuts and j cuts uh depending on which one you're doing um so it's literally just named for the shape of the letter like an l cut your um top line which is your video uh starts before the audio kicks in so in an l cut you would see the scene before you could hear the scene so you'd still be hearing the sound from the previous scene in a j cut it's the opposite your audio cuts out of your previous shot before the shot itself cuts out so you're hearing the next scene before you see it Mm -hmm. um and uh, i have a book that i cannot remember (laughs) what it's called offhand but it's it's a little it's a quick read but it's very interesting it's by walter something it's like uh, in the blink of an eye that's what it's called um can't remember the author's name but it's about like editing techniques and stuff and that's one of the big ones he talks about um the way he describes it though is uh instead of trying to keep the pacing sped up it's more of a like natural phenomenon of how in our environment, we observe things. So if you were talking to someone else and I was just sitting here watching the two of you talk, 
I wouldn't necessarily be watching you the entire time just because you were the person talking. Like if you said something yeah. and I expected a reaction from the other person, I would look over. Look. Yeah. Yeah. Even though you were still talking. So it's um, uh, the way he approaches it in a way is a bit more of a like where do your eyes naturally want to drift when a conversation's occurring. Mm-hmm. Um, and it is actually an interesting principle because I had never thought of it that way before. Um, it was just like, oh, God, let's just try to splice these together so it feels smooth. And, like, whenever you think about it that way, it is kind of like at what point would I have looked at the other person? Yeah. And at what point would I have looked away? And I think that's why it's called in the blink of an eye because he views the editing process as when we naturally blink in conversations. Like, if you're talking to me and the conversations are really captivating, I might stare a bit longer. Um, or if... Like the conversation's kind of like doled out a bit. I might look away or if I'm yeah. expecting a reaction from the other person, I might look away. It's like so. they're drawing on. So let me look over here at that yeah. you know, board in the corner yeah, of the so room. Yeah. He views it a bit more as a visual through our actual eyes. Like at what point are you blinking? And when you're blinking, that should be where you're cutting. And at what point are you looking away? Because that's when you should be cutting away. Um, but it does actually make the movie itself feel a lot more natural because it feels like you are actively there watching it happen Mm -hmm. instead of just like oh we've cut away to this now i i i I think that's interesting because i i am a writer and i'm not a director but it's one of the more fascinating things for me is pacing inside of the visual arts because i understand it to a level with the written word if i'm going through i mean it's the whole purpose of the first edit is kill your darlings, get rid of your unnecessary scenes. You know, Do we need to be in the ice cream shop? Does the ice cream shop add anything to the plot? No, fuck the ice cream shop. If it's not establishing something for your character, the story, or your theme, you don't need it. It doesn't need to be mentioned. You know, and in film, it, I, I, it, this particular theory seems very much the same way. We don't need to sit here and watch as Hank says every single word if we can get the reaction of the other characters in the room as Hank is speaking. And you can do that with three, four, five people in a scene. and yeah. it, it works very well. It's done beautifully in Heat with um, De Niro talking to Pacino in the diner because I don't believe they, they were both there at the same time. So they overlaid their audio and it looks like they're having a conversation when in actuality, I don't even think Pacino was in the state when De Niro was shooting the scene. Wow. <laughs> you can seamlessly put that together and make it look like they were both there. That yeah, because it's like their first one where they're like, they're both in the movie. And it's like, but they both weren't on the set. <laughs> <laughs> That's pretty funny. Yeah, I struggle with it. Um, Not necessarily what uh, scenes to get rid of entirely, but like pacing within an actual scene. I don't know if it's just because I'm still a bit newer to um, editing, which I mean, I've been doing it for a couple of years, but I think it takes a very long time to master anything, if ever. And um, I am curious if that ever gets easier because... I never really feel like I quite nailed it. I'm just like, ah, oh, this is close enough, you know? Mm-hmm. Like, every time I'm editing, like, conversations or just, like, shit, like, happening in a scene in general, I'm like, is this dragging too much? Is this right? Well, I think you did a really good job of this exact thing and brainstorm. Brainstorm. With the uh, cutting in and out of the interview section of the film. See, I don't feel like I did. 
And I maybe I'm just being critical, but yeah, like I'll go back and watch stuff later, and I'm like, man, I should have paced that a bit differently, or like even. Um, but you did use the theory, whether yeah. or not you, you know, now looking back at it as an artist that's grown since the time that you made that film, you did give the theory a shot, and I think it was very effective. You know, whether or not you, as a individual creative, think that you need to go back and rework it. It was there, and it yeah. was effective. Like, even in um, the stop-motion bit that I put in the commercial, like, I sped that up a bit for time's sake just because the commercial was a couple of seconds too long. And, like... The one we're doing for animal control. Yeah. yeah. And uh, it looks better faster, and I was like, oh, like, maybe I should stop dragging my scenes out so much. <laughs> yeah, sped it up, and, like, each scene is only, like, I think, like, maybe two seconds long, so it's like, bam, bam, bam. And, uh, yeah, I was like, that actually looks better. <laughs> Maybe I'm just dragging my shit out too long. <laughs> it's, it, it is a, I mean, there's a time and a place for long shots or long takes or whatever. Um, and they are effective for sure. But it is kind of a interesting thing, keeping in mind when you're editing a scene, um, there's like a universally accepted, uh, time that people's, uh, attention spans like mm-hmm. last and, it's gotten shorter since the uh, introduction of social media. I think before it was like five seconds, and I think now we're down to like three point something seconds or four point something seconds. So like, yeah, think about how fast you can scroll through your Facebook feed. You yeah. Know? <laughs> so the theory carries over to editing uh, films. You don't necessarily have to cut between people, but you should be cutting between takes of the person within yeah. that time span because. People get bored if you stay on the same shot. So it's like, when you think about that, it's like every five seconds I have to cut to something else. <laughs> like that's crazy, especially if it's like a yeah. two-hour movie. It's, it's why like you five need, seconds. Yeah, you need like an hour's worth of stock footage to make a 30-second commercial. Because <laughs> it's like, holy fuck, how many... <laughs> how am I going to keep the audience engaged? Cute picture, cute picture, cute picture, cute picture. It is weird. Like, especially if you've watched um, what you're editing, like, over and over again. Like... And that's why sometimes I have to just, like, set it down and, like, do something else and come back to it later. Like, it starts to feel, like, very hard to tell if you're doing too much and it's chaotic or if it's too slow and you need to speed it up. Because it's like, like, every five seconds feels like a whole lot of cuts. (laughs) I guess it's weird. Uh, My last one that I've got here, as promised earlier in the episode, Hitchcock's Thoughts on actors he loves them they're his favorite people ever. that's not his reputation <laughs> his um, favorite people he outside, treats them with kindness and respect outside of how often uh Aykroyd talks about his weight the other thing he brings up is hitchcock was apparently infamous for his pranks on set like he would fucking like have a person go to a you know diner he one of his big ones was he did a rapping party and um it was a very small restaurant that could only fit like 10 people and he brought 40 people and then had them all have their rap party in a restaurant where they basically couldn't even like stand up and move around he you know just because he thought it was funny yeah just because that's what made him giggle so like they, they bring up his pranks and uh his weird little ticks and stuff like that throughout the uh the thing, but they also bring up his feelings on actors. And so this is from page 77. 
After morning or afternoon tea, Hitchcock would throw his cup over his shoulder and wait for it to crash and splinter. It was a habit he continued for much of his life. Oh, that's wasteful. Saying that it was good for the nerves, relieves the tension, much better than scolding the players. Or it may have been a simple way of showing the symbolic order of the world to be as brittle as porcelain. He may, have gone, he may have had some cause to scold his male lead, however, since Michael Redgrave shared the common assumption of fellow actors that film was somehow inferior to theater. The attitude infuriated Hitchcock, who took every opportunity of removing it, or, as Redgrave put it, he decided to cut me down to size. Redgrave had said of one scene that in the theater he would have three weeks to prepare for it. Hitchcock told him, in front of the camera, he had precisely three minutes. It was in Redgrave's presence that Hitchcock is supposed to have said that, quote, actors are cattle. Hitchcock never wholly disowned the remark, adding only that he had said that actors should be treated like cattle. (laughs) I don't think that's any better. It is therefore understandable that Redgrave also said of him that he really wasn't an actor's director. He added that he knew where he wanted to put his camera. He knew which mood he wanted to affect. He had the whole thing visualized ahead of time. And once we got to the set, it could be all done very quickly and painlessly. He seemed bored, perhaps, so that he might relax them. Ted Black recalled that there was no larking about, wasting time, stupidity. He was quite a disciplinarian, but he didn't emphasize it at all. He just was it. The Lady Vanishes was completed within the cramped studio at Inslington within five weeks. That's how Hitchcock felt. They should be treated like cattle. That's a bit harsh. (laughs) (laughs) I have a vision. I want you to do the thing. Just do the fucking thing. Cry, motherfucker. I just don't have patience for people that don't take it seriously or people that um, are self-important. Well, I think that's what Hitchcock's problem was, was he was dealing with people in the talkie era who thought silent films were superior, and in the silent film era, dealing with people who thought theater was superior. And he's like, no, this is my game. Get in the game. (laughs) Like, I I think, like, my view on it is, um, from the audience's perspective, at the very least, actors do kind of tend to be the heart and soul of the movie. Um, There are a lot of other people that make movies come together the way that they do that honestly in the grand scheme of things put in more work at the end of the day than the actors do um but i think the audience is looking to connect with the actor so i I think there has to be a level of respect there where like if you're making a movie you acknowledge the actor is the person that's going to be who connects with the audience ideally if it turns Mm -hmm. out right um yeah I, i i don't care for actors that view it as if they are the star you know yeah, i'm here to be the show and it's like no you're the lead yeah. singer of a rock band and we wrote the lyrics get the fuck out of here <laughs> yeah most actors basically only 
show up for their scene and then in between when everybody else is tearing shit down and resetting shit up like the actors kind of get to fuck off and relax while everyone else is working the whole time and the crew shows up before the actors and leaves after the actors so i think there are definitely people who put in the the people on the crew don't go up and go i would like to thank the academy yeah, the people on the crew are... The director might, but, like, the boom mic operator is not. <laughs> the people on the crew are largely unacknowledged. I mean, they get put in the credits, but who actually sits there and watches the credits, and who knows who any of those people are? Um, I know who the best boy is. <laughs> who is the best Jacks. boy? <laughs> um, so I, I do think there are probably people in the filmmaking process that maybe technically do work harder, Um I do think a good performance can definitely make or break a movie, though. Um, Because that's what the audience has come for. But, again, like the note you had about directors, there is the trick of the signature. Because I love Al Pacino. But I love Al Pacino because I know at some point in the movie, Pacino's going to go the fuck off and start (laughs) screaming at somebody, and it's going to be awesome. You know, you'd either be going, Attica! Attica! Or you killed my son, you know, <laughs> and then slapping K across the face in the Godfather Part Two. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I again, I don't know though. Is is being stereotyped as having a signature performance good for your career either though? Because then you're always only ever playing those roles. Like I, yeah, you become a character actor. Yeah. Like I, you become I chubby guy in a family movie. You know, yeah. it's, it's why we appreciate Jim Carrey for breaking out of the comedy roles to do more dramatic works, you know, kind of fucking with Keanu doesn't just, I mean, he did a bunch of matrix movies and the John Wick series has gotten out of hand, but you know, like he's played in devil's advocate. Mm-hmm. method actors as odd as they can be sometimes like really disappear into roles (laughs) so i i don't know i don't know that having a signature is necessarily the best for your career i mean i think your signature should be your awesome and (laughs) this is a weird one to bring up right after that but kevin spacey he doesn't have a thing maybe like slow monologue like, if you were going to pin a, a, a trait on how Spacey mm. acts, it's going to be, there's going to, he's going to say some fucked up shit very slowly and casually. <laughs> I was actually thinking, maybe just because we somewhat recently watched Joker, uh, Joaquin Phoenix, mm-hmm. I feel like he's someone who kind of disappears into his roles. That's a better example. Yeah, I, <laughs> Joaquin is not currently on the controversial or not. Kevin Spacey was a very talented actor. Um, <laughs> I probably would not be in a hurry to buy any of his movies, but I can't take away that. I've been looking for seven for three <laughs> weeks. But, well, he's not. It's really Brad the main Pitt star. and Morgan no. Freeman. He's not Brad really Pitt, the, main star. the only one got over it. <laughs> I, I can't take away that he was a very talented actor, but again, someone whose ego got away from him. So mm. don't be. <laughs> douche <laughs> which is the problem with actors don't be a douche and that's my final takeaway do you have anything to add love no you good no ready to okay. yeah yeah good right, well, i'm just tired you want to go do wings and rings and yeah i still haven't showered either so i'd love a something. shower jim smelly jim smelly yep. smells awesome oh yeah <laughs> booty <laughs> uh i guess we'll talk to you guys on tuesday no plugs you want to do plugs we should. Let's do plugs. Let's do plugs. Fucking hit them up. Facebook, yeah. Facebook.com slash Nightmare Box Productions. Or the Twitter at. 
at Nightmare Box Pro. Or you might even go over there to the Grams. <laughs> Do it for the Grams. Do it for the Grams. Uh, at Nightmare Box Productions. Or you can send us an email at... Nightmareboxproductions at Gmail. And if you let me know where you are, I'll figure out how to get $10 from you and I'll send you my book, The Madman Diaries, a collection. I don't give a shit. If it costs me $15 to get it to you, $10 up front, I'm a happy bitch. If you send me a really nice email... Might even send you the book for free. Just let me know what? where you live, and I won't send a hit squad. You'll get a special beer stained <laughs> copy. Special beer stained copy of the Madman Diaries, or you can go over to YouTube.com/slash Kristen Bloom, where you can see all the things she did, primarily while she was still in film school. Or we can go to YouTube.com/slash Nightmare Box Productions, where you can see the dolls. You can see brainstorm you can see happy birthday i don't know why i always use that same inflection for brainstorm that has nothing to do with the title brainstorm (laughs) um but yeah you guys can go see that over there or our website which is the nightmarebox.blog where you can see brainstorm and the dolls and you can see happy birthday and you can also see behind the scenes pictures you can read the scripts and a couple of stories that i wrote a long long time ago that i desperately need to uh update and eventually there's going to be a patreon if we can get enough of you guys reviewing the fucking show so I know that it's worth it to start a Patreon instead of having four or five bullshit subscriptions <laughs> where some friend of mine pays me $10, I would like to know <laughs> exactly where we are in the world or I'm going to open up a fucking Etsy store. I, so, did, <laughs> I did submit us to Amazon Music, so hopefully that'll be approved soon. So we'll also yeah. be on Amazon Music if you use their service. <laughs> But share it with your friends. Share it with your family, unless your family doesn't like jokes. Uh, <laughs> did I miss anything, love? No, I think that's everything. All right. I love you, sweetheart. Ooh, that's a lot that of love. love you. Jesus Christ, we got autism glasses. Literal autism glasses. I'm not making fun of the autistic. They say autism on them. And I love you guys. It's the final countdown. <laughs> I was trying to remember the song I was singing earlier. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Again, it's not the Rocky theme song. Adrian.